All right, you may have a seat. Get out your Bible. If you have one, we'll be in two places primarily, uh, Ephesians chapter 5 and then also in Genesis chapter 2. Everybody doing okay today? Man, I tell you what, I don't know about you, but I've had a good weekend. You all look like you've had a good weekend. Raise your hand if you enjoyed the weather yesterday. Raise your hand if you did something with your honey yesterday, your, your sweet, sweet spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend or... Man, it's, a, it's Valentine's Day is a tricky deal because you and I both know if, if we only express our love one time a year, it's, uh, we stink. But, you know, if, if you don't do something, you know, then, then that's also a problem. And so there's that, you know, you want to do something, and I'm very fortunate. I do, in fact, love my wife, and so it was easy to do stuff for her. So we enjoyed doing it with the kids, and, and um, probably a, a special thing for me was I, I got to take flowers to my daughter at school, and then I went and ate lunch with her, and uh, so that was a little fun. And then yesterday to my, <clears throat> my, my daughter's basketball team, the last game of the season, we got killed, don't talk to me about it, um, I, I said to them all, happy Valentine's Day, I love you all. And it got real, real weird because I realized that these are third and fourth grade girls and one girl goes, you're not going to try to kiss us, are you? <laughs> I was like, only one of you. And I kissed my daughter and it was the end. And um, <clears throat> maybe that's why we lost the game so bad is uh, that weird moment at the beginning. Anyway, so here we are. We are in this series called Unique. And last week I talked about the uniqueness of being single. And so if you missed that, I encourage you to go and to listen to it. The audio recording is a little, little bad at the beginning, but just bear with it. It gets better. I encourage you to go there. And today I want to talk about the uniqueness of marriage. Now, just like last week, I had to work from the beginning pretty hard to get those of you that are not single uh, interested in a message on singleness. Well, here we're going to talk about marriage, and I realize that not all of you are married. Maybe some of you have no desire to be married, and that's okay. And, and the reason that, that we all need to hear a sermon like this is because the church is a family. We need to understand something about other people in our family. We need to value it. We need to learn things about what the Bible says to married people so that whether or not you are married, you can have a more full understanding of God's design and best for those that are married. We are family, and so we grow together. We learn together. I want you to hear something very, very clearly. There is no more important relationship between human beings than marriage. It is truly unique. And what I want to do today in our time is focus on helping you to understand marriage as mission. I mean, we've got some work to do to get there, but I want you to understand marriage as mission. Paul tells the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 32, the mystery that is marriage is profound. So I want to admit that even as I begin, is that as we talk about marriage and the relationship between a husband and a wife, we acknowledge that this relationship is mysterious and it is profound. But according to the Bible, the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife is incredibly important. There's something larger going on in marriage than just a man and a woman saying, yes, I do. And it's not easy. Can I get an amen? 
It's okay. You're in a safe place if they try to elbow you. One preacher said, love is blind and marriage is an eye opener. Now, as we talk about marriage, I love to celebrate marriage as a faith community. So I thought it might be kind of fun to find out who's been married the longest and who's been married the shortest amount of time. Now, I think I know who's been married the shortest amount of time. James and Megan, how long have you all been married? Yeah, you see that? He's like, he's like I know, but I want to make sure I'm right. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out for you. When is your wedding day? Um, yeah, so you're almost at four weeks, okay. Has anybody been married less than that? Very good. Congratulations. How's it going? Okay, so far so good? Okay. I, you know, one day you're going to have to wake up and get groceries, but, you know, like, like this is really what marriage is like. All right, those of you that have been married, so everybody that's married, stand up. Everybody that's married, stand up. I was going to do a thing last week where I had all the singles stand, and, and, and if you wanted to be married... Remain standing and then try to see what we could. But I, I don't know that that would have gone well. Okay, so you've been married, stand up. If you've been married uh, less than five years, sit down. If you've been married less than 10 years, sit down. 15 years, sit down. 20 years, sit down. I see you, boo. All right, we're at 20 years. 23 years, sit down. 25 years. 28 years. Can you feel the excitement building, people? <laughs> 28 years, 30 years, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37. How long have you all been married? How many years? 45 years. 45 years here. <laughs> That is something, man. We celebrate with you. Um, I, um, it is all, 45 years. 35 of the best years of your life, huh? <laughs> oh, there you go. The best is yet to come. All right, very good. So James and Megan, you should get with John and Elise later, later and say, okay, what is the crash course on making it to 45 years? So uh, marriage is something that we ought to celebrate. We don't shy away from celebrating it. Uh, it's interesting because in our day, fewer and fewer people are getting married. And um, there's, there's so much of pessimism uh, surrounding this idea of being in a committed relationship with somebody. There, there's so much fear nowadays. But, but we don't fear it, nor are we afraid of it. We celebrate it. And we are, we're excited about it. And we encourage it in our faith community. It's an incredibly important thing. When I was early on in my relationship with Jeannie, um, I, I knew early on that, that marriage, the potential of marriage was a profound mystery, and loving somebody was, was going to be difficult. And so I did what I oftentimes do when I, when I don't understand something. I look to people that are, that are experts, aficionados in the area of marriage and love. And, and one of my mentors early on was a man by the name of Lionel Richie. <laughs> and so on the very night, 16 years ago, February 13th, when I asked my wife to marry me, I read these words to express my love. Lionel Richie's song, Penny Lover. 
the first time I saw you, oh, you looked so fine, and I had a feeling one day you'd be mine, honey, you came along, come on, and captured my heart. I'll stop there. <laughs> we need some help to think about love and think about marriage in a relationship. And what I want you to understand is that a marriage is designed by God to be a mission for something much greater than just saying, hey, I'm married and, and getting that joint tax return. I mean, marriage is important. But foundational to our understanding of marriage's mission, what we must realize is that marriage has as its essence a deepening friendship. I want you to hear that. Marriage on mission has as its essence a deepening friendship between two people. There's a, something going on, and, and I'm tempted to use the word relationship, but that's thrown out so often. I want you to get in your mind the sense of a deepening friendship. We see in Paul's words to the Ephesians, these themes that help us to understand this kind of friendship of, of love and servant leadership and gladly following and this unique relationship between a husband and a wife. But to truly understand Paul's words, we ought to go way back to the very first married couple, Adam and Eve. So if you have your Bible, look to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 is where we'll begin. It's interesting in this creation account, God has called all that he has created good. He's created human beings, or man, very good. He's called them very good. He's very proud of his creation. So the first time in the Bible we see something that's not good is when Paul, I mean, I'm sorry, God is, is talking about this created man. Look there in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It says, then the Lord God said, it is not good, there we go, it is not good, which should sound out to us because this theme of what is good is huge in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It says, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Skip to verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not Ashamed. How could Adam, living here in this paradise, commuting unhindered communion with God Almighty, how could he feel alone? Well, it is because God has created Adam to, to be connected or supported by another human being. And God gives Adam permission to try to find this relationship in animals and, and it doesn't happen although I know some of you are really close to your pets which is okay but they're not the same as a human being God here is helping us to understand that the way that we are made in the image of God is to 
develop in this deepening friendship with another human being in the context of this marriage relationship. We are made in the image of God, just like God the Father relates to God the Son, and God the Son relates to the Holy Spirit. There is uh, connection and, and, uh, and friendship between the three persons of the one being God. We as human beings have within us an innate desire for loving another person, being connected to another person. Now, it's interesting to note that Adam is the physical source of Eve, and he's given the responsibility of naming her. And both of these are elements in the narrative that lay the basis for what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 5 when he's telling the wives to submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I mean, when I read that, I can just feel the air being sucked out of the rooms because it sound, sounds harsh, it sounds demeaning or authoritative. But what we realize is that the way that God has designed it is for the husband to be the leader in the home, carry the greater amount of responsibility for all things going on in the home. And when that's happening, that the, the wife is created by God to follow, gladly follow his leadership. We'll see later that the husband is to relate to the wife with the kind of love that Christ has for the church, which is significant. What does all that mean? Well, if we think about Genesis chapter 2 again, what we read is that God is going to find a helper suitable for him. Genesis 2.18 is where we find that. And the word helper here in the English language is actually not the best translation for the Hebrew word represented. Helper means... um, Something along the lines of assisting someone who could do the task almost as well without help. But a better translation for the word in Hebrew is that um, the helper, the person that God is going to provide, is going to help Adam do what he could not do on his own. It's sometimes used in the Old Testament like for military help or reinforcements to, to help win a battle that could not be won had the helper not come along. So to help someone, the role of the wife is to, to make up that which is lacking in strength of the husband. Men are weak and they need help. Amen, ladies? It's okay. It's okay. Take a deep breath. The word suitable is also in that passage, and it's a little tricky. And what it literally means is that this person that we know as Eve is going to be opposite of him. So without this helper who's opposite of him, the man is incomplete. This is the first marriage relationship we see. And one reason I go to it in Genesis chapter 2 is because Paul references that passage, Genesis chapter 2, when he's talking to the church in Ephesus about the relationship of marriage in the home. Now, one thing I will point out is that in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21, Paul tells, says these words, be subject one to another. And that context of that passage is what it looks like to be walking in the Spirit is that we understand that we are together. There's a mutual submission, a mutual uh, sacrifice. And in the home, the man being the leader of the home is not about 
ruling or demeaning or being harsh. And this is hard for you, especially if you've had a father or a man fail you or hurt you or take advantage of you. I get it. There's something beautiful going on here in the marriage relationship that we must understand so that our friendship with one another can deepen. Can I just tell you that I think the greatest challenge to healthy marriages today is a diminished capacity among people for real friendships. We're wounded. People are wounded. They're wounded by an an overly authoritarian leader or parent, or they've been wounded by uh, someone that they've dated. And so our capacity, or friends, our capacity to develop healthy friendships is diminished in our day. And one thing that I think accentuates that is the popularity of things like Facebook, where we can dip in and out of friendships kind of on our terms. And I'm not downing Facebook. I just got onto it a couple weeks ago, which I know makes me sound really old, and I've actually enjoyed it. (laughs) But what's happening there is not a real deepening kind of friendship. I do think that in our day, what causes marriages to struggle is is um, really, really our diminished capacity to develop good friendships. So what I want to do just in this section of the sermon is I want to help you be a good friend. And so this applies to you if you're married or if you're not. It, it dep- applies, applies to you, and I want you to think about how it works in your context. Three things that I think make a good friend, and we find much of what I'm about to say in the book of Proverbs. Constancy, and yes, that is a word. Candor and calling. Constancy means it's the quality of being faithful or dependable. Proverbs, we read these words. A friend is always loyal, and his brother, a brother is born in help. A bo- brother is born to help in time of need. You see, friends love at all times, especially during adversity. Think about your spouse. Think about whether or not you are willing to love them at all times, and especially in a time of adversity, or a day of adversity. The, the counter to this kind of a friend is what's called a fair-weather friend. A fair-weather friend comes over when you're successful, or is loving when you're, you're easy to love, right? But if, if your health or prosperity goes away or influence wanes, a fair-weather friend is lost, Proverbs chapter 19, verse 4, wealth makes many friends, poverty drives them all away. So in your marriage relationship, as you seek to have a marriage on mission, what needs to be happening is a deepening friendship, and this requires you to understand that a friend loves at all times, especially in adversity. In fact, it's during times of adversity in your marriage relationship that you will either go stronger or you'll grow further apart. I found that in my own marriage, when things are the most difficult, either between us or in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in as a family, it's how we relate to one another as friends during that time that either strengthens us or drives us apart. I read a story about the strength of a relationship that has been made into a video, and maybe you've seen it. It's about this man named Ian and this woman named Larissa. The story is 
that they met in 2005. We have a picture of them, I believe. They met in 2005 at college, and they dated for 10 months, getting to know each other. They fell in love, became very close friends. Planned to get married in December of 2006. But before they were married, tragedy intervened. Ian was in a terrible car wreck. Suffered severe brain damage. They had developed a friendship, developed a love, planned to get marriage, and then things changed. Of course, a lot of people around Larissa asked her, are you still going to marry him? And she stuck with it. She stayed faithful. And it's an interesting video, a beautiful story, because after a short time of recovery, they actually were wed. This is one of the pictures at their wedding. And she'll tell you the only way that her heart was able to continue to see Ian for who God created him to be was God himself. The only way she was able to be strong and constant in this relationship was because the supernatural work of God gave her the heart to continue to love him. And they remain uh, married today. I want you to have that in your mind when you hear this word constancy. It's the quality of being faithful and steadfast and dependable. Also, the Proverbs tell us that true friends stick closer than a brother. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24, there are friends who destroy each other, but a real friend sticks closer than a brother. They are always there for you. In a friendship, Galatians 6, 2 gives us a sense that uh, Christian, in a Christian relationship, we are to bear one another's burdens. Certainly that's true of a friendship. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. I want you to know that in your marriage, what you're committing to on your wedding day is to bear the burdens of another person as if they were your own. That's significant. What happens oftentimes is when two people get married and then things get difficult, one person says, whoa, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't know you'd leave your socks on the floor. Or I didn't know you went to the bathroom. <laughs> you know, some guys are like surprised to find that out. <laughs> but I want you to know that in a real deepening kind of friendship that is required for your marriage to last and to grow and to develop and to be healthy and something you enjoy. We must learn to bear one another's burdens. We are connected to one another. In a marriage ceremony, what's happening supernaturally is that two people, or before God, two people are becoming one person. It's incredible to think about and scary. So there must be constancy, a strength a steadfastness and endurance. In a f- developing friendship or deepening friendship, there also must be candor. Everybody say candor. candor. You know what candor is? Candor is saying what needs to be said. In a real friendship, we encourage and affectionately affirm one another. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 9. The heartfelt counsel of a friend is as sweet as perfume and incense. Isn't that right? Somebody speaks words of encouragement or affection to you. That is a beautiful and sweet thing. It's, it's wonderful to receive. This is what's required in a relationship. Now, when I said candor, some of you immediately thought of, oh, I get to be critical 
I get to be negative. And that's not the case. Candor is the courage to speak up things that need to be said to another person. Oftentimes that should be loving and gentle and kind and affirming. A woman loves to hear that she looks beautiful. That those pants aren't too tight. That no, her hair is not any more gray than it used to be. You know, whatever. Men like to be affirmed verbally too. Men like to hear their wife say to them, you're doing a good job. Something that Jeannie and I have developed over the years because I've told her it's important to me is that I like when I come home for her to greet me at the door. Like, leave it to Beaver, old school, you know? And the reason for that is because in that brief amount of time, no matter what burden I've had to bear during the day or what stress I've had, we have a quick word and she speaks to me, I love you. And I speak to her, I love you. And our lives intersect and then it gets crazy for about three hours until we get the kids down. It's because the power of those words in that moment are like an incense or perfume to my soul. Friends that are willing to speak with candor, encourage one another with honor and affirmation. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 2, let someone else praise you, not your own mouth, a stranger, not your own lips. It's really a wonderful thing when other people praise us and we don't have to praise ourselves. I did a little bit of research on the power of words, the power of candor in a marriage relationship, and I found this study by these two men, Cliff Notorious of Catholic University and Howard Markman of Denver University. And these two psychologists studied hundreds of couples over a 10-year period to determine the factors for success uh, or divorce in their marriage relationship. And what they discovered as the one thing that they could point to as being the reason that some people divorced and some people remain married. It wasn't money. It wasn't looks. It was this one thing. The couples that were divorced were more likely to speak insults or speak negatively towards the other person. Did you hear that? This is the power of words in your marriage relationship. The couples that stayed together were less likely to be cutting or negative or, or harsh in the way that they speak to another person. Now, I had to learn this early on because my spiritual gift is sarcasm, that, that the way that I talk to my wife, even when I'm kidding, can be cutting, can be digging, and I, even to this day, have to apologize to her. In fact, just this week, as I was preparing this sermon, I got very convicted, and I had to call my wife and say, I'm sorry, the way I've spoken to you is unloving and harsh, and I'm really, really sorry. And what happens when, when one person speaks insults or negatively harshly to the other, to their spouse or future spouse, is that it erodes the foundation required for a strong marriage. Do you hear me? So the way that we talk to one another privately and also publicly is so important. Not only should we have the courage or the candor to... um, to speak positively towards one another. I mean, it's real life, and so we ought also to be able to, in our marriage relationship, speak, um, have a room to, to, to speak 
with critique. I don't want to say speak negatively. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6. Wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. You might want to write that one down. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6. Wounds from a sincere friend are better than kisses from an enemy. All of us need in our marriage relationship some room to say things that are hard to hear for the other person. It's true. But oftentimes the way we do it really screws things up. Screws things up. So I, I, I marry people quite often. I have this company on the side called the Wedding Pastor Russell, and so I meet people inside the church, outside the church, and and uh, so I do premarital counseling. And so this is a tool that I give them as we talk about deepening in their friendship, encouraging them to deepen their friendship, and and the power of words. So if you have something negative to say, this is this is for you. Very easy. Write it down. If you have something negative to say, and if you are human in your inner relationship, there's going to be times of conflict, times where you need to say something that's not going to always be positive, not always going to be like a sweet aroma, sweet perfume, you know, like it's it very rare for you to say, hey, you're getting on my nerves, and the other person say, oh, that's just like, you know, Calvin Klein cologne to me. I mean, I love smelling that, you know. No, I mean, there's times you're like, you need to say, hey, this bothers me when you do this. Here, here's, here's a tool for you, Jane and Megan. Just, I mean, you've been married three weeks. This will help you all. Okay, here we go. Two positives and one negative. Speak two positives to them and be sincere. And then if you need to bring up something still that's negative, then, then do it. Now, who knows? You speak two positive things to your spouse. She may just want to make out with you and you don't have to speak the negative. I mean, go for it. And another thing about speaking words that might come across as critical to another person, do not ever do it at bedtime. Have you ever had that conversation? You are laying in bed, and I tend to do this. And I'm sorry, I'm confessing it right now. And I'll say, you know what, you did something that really bothered me. You know, we're watching Jimmy Fallon. She's like, what? <laughs> Don't ever do it at bedtime because very often you're, one or both of you is very tired and it's not going to end up good. You say, I have something negative I want to say to the other person or somewhat, not negative, but critical, constructive, I want to say to the other person. And, and to think that we'll never be able to do this is naive. And if you don't deal with conflict or things that are bothering you in your marriage, if you stuff them, then it will just lead you to brokenness and divorce. I'm telling you, I see it all the time. You have to be able to deal with conflict in a healthy kind of a way. Here's what you ought to do. Pray about it seven days in a row. And if after seven days it's still a big deal to you, then bring it up. When you bring it up, bring it up with two positives and one negative, and then listen. You heard the phrase, there's a reason God gave us one mouth and two ears. So listen. Be a listener. Don't just go in guns a-blazing about why you're upset, but speak gently, kindly, with a soft voice, and then let God begin to work on your relationship. Real friends can speak things that are not just always positive and affirming, like like a real incense or aroma. Sometimes we have to be able to say hard stuff. We also know that real friends will use their words to provoke the other person to love and good deeds. That's a powerful thing in a marriage relationship. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good deeds. And that's talking about the context of the church, but certainly that applies to a marriage relationship. Dr. Howard Hendricks, who's a world-renowned Christian counselor and author, has said that people get married with a picture in their minds of a perfect marriage. Then after a few trials, they discover they aren't married to a, a perfect picture. 
but an imperfect person. One of two things happens after this, according to Dr. Hendricks. They'll either tear up the picture that they had in their mind, or they'll begin to tear down the other person. I certainly encourage you to develop and deepen your friendships, your willingness to be someone who speaks with candor. The third C that we see here for a developing, deepening friendship is calling. Here's what I have observed and I believe to be true from the scriptures. Real friendships are formed when two people share a sense of calling for something. Real friendships are formed when two people share a sense of calling for something. Have you ever been, raise your hand if you've ever been to a Houston Texans football game or any kind of professional sporting event. You could walk into the stadium, sit down, have never in your life talked to the person sitting next to you, but if you're both fans for the Houston Texans and you share a sense of calling that that team needs to to pass or to, to, to run or to whatever, what happens? You immediately become friends. I mean, you're like hugging a guy. You're buying him drinks. You know, you're showing him pictures of your kids, your grandkids or whatever. It's because at a Texans game or a sporting event, you both have, are looking towards something together and you care about it together, so you're immediately friends. Here's what I believe to be true in a marriage. Strong marriages require a sense of calling for something greater. If all you're doing in marriage is saying, I'm going to find somebody that's going to complete me. I'm going to find somebody to, to be good at what I'm not so that we can be capable, functioning human beings. I mean, that'll get boring. However, if you have a sense of calling, you will experience the kind of friendship that God has designed for you to experience in marriage and you will be on mission as a married couple. C.S. Lewis, the well-known Christian writer, insisted that the essence of friendship is the exclamation, you two? Whenever you find yourself saying that to someone else, you see your spouse excited about something, you two? And that might be a prerequisite for those of you that are thinking about getting married. Is the person that you're thinking about getting married to called to the same kind of thing you are? Is there a sense of calling there? Marriage on mission requires a sense of calling to something greater. I hope that you'll develop in your friendships. I hope that these little tools, these little tweaks along the way will give you a, a greater sense that your marriage is on mission for God. If we look back again at Ephesians chapter 5 to try to understand what Paul was saying here, we already saw that, that, that God has designed marriage for the husband to take the greater responsibility. We see in verse 25 that husbands are to love your wives as Christ loved the church. So as we begin talking about or thinking about, okay, so how do we go from here in this deepening friendship and, and, and as we're on mission for God, what do we do from here? Um, there's just two simple things I want to give to the husbands, to the wives, and then we're going to be done. First of all, I want to say to husbands, love your wives. I don't mean love your wives like you love a kind of food, you know? Or it's like you think about it when you're hungry. 
You go out of your way for it on occasion, and it's all about you. I mean, never when I sit down to eat barbecue is it about the barbecue. It's always about me. It's always about my satisfaction. It's always about my feeling. When I leave, I don't feel, I don't think about that barbecue. I think about myself. I think sometimes this is the way men relate to women in a marriage. You cannot enter that love relationship thinking it's all about you. You must love your wife in the way that Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. Husbands, it's no longer about you. It's about a sense of calling and helping her become the kind of person that God wants her to be for his glory, for his fame. We talk about Christ giving himself up for the church. Christ laid his life down on the cross for the church. Through faith, if we receive what Christ did on the cross, what happens is our sin as individuals goes to him, his righteousness comes to us, and we get to experience new life. This is what Jesus Christ did for us. Left, according to Philippians chapter 2, a place of perfection to come to earth, to be crucified, so that people could be made right with God or reconciled to God. This is how Christ loves the church. Husbands, this is our picture as we think about how to love our wives. Some of you husbands resent the fact, and whether or not it's true, that you feel like you carry more responsibility. Don't. You are to love your wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for you, it or her. It is no longer about you. It is about you. It's no longer a me. It's a we for the glory of God. I actually think this is one reason there's such a rise in the number of people that live like they're married before they're willing to commit to be married. And I know we have families in this church or couples in this church that are living together, not yet married, and I do not want to shame you. I I love you, and you know that, and I've talked to all of you. But I pray that you will see, men, that ultimately you're responsible for leading that person who is a child of God to the throne of God, presenting her to God as holy and blameless. You are responsible for that. And if you treat her as anything less than our daughter of the king by expecting her to relate to you as your wife before you're willing to give to her the kind of husbandry that God has set up, then that is an offense against the holy God. And I love you, and I would hug you, and I'd say this gently if we were knee to knee. But it's true. What an awesome thing, husbands. We're to love our wives as Christ loved the church, not selfishly. And wives... It's kind of funny to think about. But if you understand that your marriage relationship is given to you by God for a greater purpose, a mission, for the glory of God, what I, what I want to say to you is that you ought to think about your role in your home as being to help your family get on mission. And that looks differently for different families. But help your husband see the mission of God. Be a helper, not a behind, passive kind of person in the relationship, but somebody that stands beside and helps the two of you get on mission for God. 
husband loves your wives, wives, help your family get on mission.